There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you've tuned in this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Today's guest is Ashley Davis. Ashley is a lead principal at West Front Strategies, a multi-million dollar lobbying firm she co-founded in 2015. In that role, she oversees advocacy efforts for the interests of her Fortune 500 clients before the federal government's legislative and executive branches. Ashley's expertise comes from years working in the executive branch. As Special Assistant to National Director and then Security of Homeland Security, Tom Ridge, Ashley directed the daily operations and oversaw the staff at the newly created Office of Homeland Security. Ashley holds a Master's of International Business from Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business. She sits on several nonprofits and corporate boards, including the Kennedy Center National Symphony Orchestra. Ashley Davis, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thank you so much for having me today. Thanks for your time. Uh, two things before we start. I've warned you before, my viewers and listeners know, you know, my 30 pound Shih Tzu Zeke is here in here squeaking away. So hopefully he'll take a little power nap for us. <laughs> and also one thing I didn't bring up before, uh, you know, we're not going to talk about Georgetown. My listeners know my undergrad and graduate school are Syracuse. So, you know, we'll, we won't talk about the basketball rivalry, but <laughs> I always like to, to raise that for the guests as a, as a forewarning. So well, I'm actually my I'm actually from the Penn State area kind of originally. And so that's kind of more than Georgetown for me. Good. Good for you. That's okay then. So Ashley, I just shared a bit of your professional background. Tell us about where you grew up, like you just mentioned, how you chose a career in government and then government relations and the path you took to get where you are today. Sure. Um, I'm actually from a very small town outside of Pittsburgh, as I talked about earlier. I have um, uh, uncle and a cousin that were both state senators. But besides that, none of my family was really in politics. And and they were, they lived in another part of the state than me. So I didn't know them that well until I got into my 20s. And they did really help me as when I moved to Harrisburg. But I was majoring in public relations in college. I went to Westminster, a small liberal arts school in Western Pennsylvania, had no thoughts about politics, thought I was going to do communications. And I was at a wedding and met someone that worked for then Governor Rich, who was governor of Pennsylvania. And this was before my junior year in college. And I was like, well, that sounds fun. Maybe I'll move to Harrisburg, which was like a huge town compared to where I went to school and grew up. And so I uh, did an internship that summer for Governor Ridge and just caught the bug and loved him as a human being. Um, and I ended up then working for him again later. But uh, he, I ended up then graduate. I went back to school for a semester. And after I got that bug of um, adulthood, so to speak, I actually got a full-time job and I ended up doing, um, graduating just a semester early from college. And so started working again for the governor. I was making $17,000 a year, um, which was like so much more than minimum wage that I was making, you know, part-time at the local outlet mall. Um, so I then got a call after about six months from um, something called a lobbying firm. I literally had to look it up. I had no idea. And they're like, hey, do you want to come work for us? Um, you'll make $24,000 a year. So I was like, absolutely, because that was even more money. And so I left and I really had great mentors at that firm who taught me the ins and outs of what this profession really was. And so that was uh, Bill Greenlee, who's now passed away. He really took me under his arm and, and taught me all the different dynamics of, and at that time it was state lobbying. But I'm giving a long story here. But then I decided to, um, a few years after doing that, uh, George Bush, W. Bush was running for president and every governor had, to, Republican governor was giving staff or political people in their orbit to the Bush campaign. So all, so everyone was kind of coordinated. It was a really fantastic, well-run um, campaign. And so I went on behalf, on the campaign on behalf of, of 
the Governor Ridge world. And so that's kind of what got me, ended up getting me to Washington, which is a whole other story that I'll not bore you with right now. But that's how I, I it just kind of was happenstance. There was no real, this is what I'm going to do and how to get there. So it wasn't just a 30% raise. Was there something else that drew you into being a lobbyist? <laughs> um, I do have to say that I really like the private sector side of things. I mean, I've been in government now twice, once in the White House um, and once in state government, as I said, working for Governor Ridge. But I've always gravitated back towards the private sector. And so I get the question all the time, would I ever run for office? Have I ever thought about running for office? I never have, never have any desire to have that scrutiny, especially in this day and age. Um, I like being behind the scenes, but also I'm very, as my MBA shows, I'm very interested in the business side of things. And as I get um, further and further along in my career, I've been able to to really do more, some of the business aspects of, of my clients, as well as the political policy aspects. What does a typical day look like for you in the government affairs position, if there is such a thing as a typical day? So... With, there's not a typical day. Um, my self-diagnosed ADD, it's perfect for. I have, we do about 50 different clients in many different spaces, healthcare, tech. Um, we do everything from Tesla to Walgreens to Microsoft. So it's a bunch of different issues. Um, and I could go like just today, for example, I talked about, I just got off the phone about healthcare. I had a conversation about, um, tech company two hours before that, uh, later today I have to do, um, something in the vaping space. I mean, so it's all over the, I always say that we know, um, a little about a lot <laughs> of different issues, which keeps me very interested. Um, but I do have to say, when Congress is in town, it's a much different day than when Congress is out of town. So as many or most of you may know, there's Congress comes in, it's obviously full time, but there's certain weeks when they're back at home to work in their districts. And when they're actually in Washington is when all the hearings take place, when bills are passed. And so it just is... A lot busier and so right now we're in a three-week period of them being in town until they uh, go home for the holidays hopefully you talked about having to know a little bit about a lot you know you must spend half a day just reading and up on the different issues of the day for those sectors is that one of the most challenging aspects of your job uh, it's probably one of the most interesting for me. I mean, you do have to depend uh, a lot on learning about the company from the company. I mean, usually, as, especially with some of the clients, most of the clients we represent, they have a infrastructure in place that supports us in regards to what the company's, how the, a certain policy would affect these companies. And so you do rely on that, but Going back to my comment about being structured, I mean, I do have, I do get four newspapers that are still paper, so I'm supporting the newspaper industry um, every day. And I, it's not like I read them cover to cover, but that's how I really look at kind of what's going on in the different worlds. But also, it's kind of our job to know what's going on or what bills happening in what industry. And the flip side of that, what do you find most rewarding about working in government affairs? Uh, there's always fun time. So there's a couple things. Having this firm and being able to make the decisions on our clients, we and my my firm's bipartisan. We when when we started this, it was very important that it was be bipartisan. Um, but we and this is something I will stick to as long as I'm here. We will not take on issues that are controversial in regards to things that we wouldn't believe in or that we couldn't get behind. Um, even, so we don't take on social issues. We don't take on the pro-choice, pro-life. We don't take on guns. We don't take on, just because those are issues that are so divisive that we, I just, are my firm's small enough in regards to people that I wouldn't want to put somebody in a bad position because how we work is we all are supposed to um, work on all the clients. And so I would say, 
from that perspective, the reason I say that, when we do have an issue that actually um, passes or um, a piece of legislation passes that is beneficial to our clients, it's very rewarding. But some of my like side hustles in politics, um, which I just learned this word, this side hustle is a thing. I didn't know. I guess I'm too old. Um, is I try to get more, one thing that Republicans are not real good at is electing women, in, many women in Congress. Democrats are much better at it than us. And so uh, one of the things I really do in regards to kind of the congressional world in my free time is try to get more women elected to office, which is rewarding because we're doing a lot better job than we used to. It's funny going back to what you said about what you will or will not do uh, for the firm. And I think we're very like-minded in the fact that we'll have any conversation here on the show, but we don't talk about guns, abortion, or politics. <laughs> so I guess it's boring after that, but uh, I absolutely understand and agree with that that mindset. Yeah. So it would seem it's to me that relate. Divisive these days. It, it is. It's a lightning rod that we've got other things to, to worry about. Exactly. So it would seem to me that relationship building and the ability to build working relationships is the foundation of your profession. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. But I also think it's a reputation I would add to that as well. I mean, as I stated earlier, one of our biggest ways of getting information about how certain pieces of legislation would impact a company is from the company itself. And we have to make sure that that information that we're getting from our clients and our companies is accurate for what we're saying on the Hill about how this, for example, tax provision is going to truly impact, um, you know, the bottom line or the people or the employees of X, Y, and Z company. And because, especially in, in my business where we represent numerous companies, sometimes we're talking to staff and senators and congressmen and women um, on multiple different issues. And if we are ever not giving information that's correct to these offices or not giving the full picture or not doing something that um, would be harmful to you know the member of congress or their reputation you're never going to be able to be effective and so that is always my fear but also how i make sure that whatever i'm saying is 100 percent right and it's not that you don't trust people it's just if you lose your reputation in regards to things like that then you're not going to be good in this profession so it is relationships but it's also just that um i, I say the reputation is even better than relationships the word lobbying was coined a lot of people don't know from the lobby of the willard hotel just a block from the white house so obviously lo lobbying is one of the oldest professions here in the country. I forget which president was there that they were trying to, to meet him to lobby for different ideas and bills. You started your firm in 2015. Knowing how old the industry is, how were you able to be so successful? And maybe part two of that is it's a fairly male-dominated industry. How did you be so successful as a female executive? So... I, first of all, surround myself with people that are much better than me. My The team that works here are fantastic. And I've always been able, so when I left the White House, I went to a law firm for 13 years and ran their government affairs. So that was kind of my first true management, but it was nice because it was under a bigger umbrella. Um, I've always been able, I would say as a strength, is to spot talent. Um, because this industry has a different talent than other industries, right? I mean, you have to have go-getters. We don't hold your hand. You have to go be making, you know, doing things on your own. And so um, that is something that I feel like I've done really well. I mean, the team here is just unbelievable. And so I think that's one of the ways that, you know, the main way that we've been successful. But also... Um, I've never had an issue being a woman in this industry. I mean, I think I'm almost 50 now, so I've been in it a long time. I actually think that being a woman was helpful in some ways because, well, one, I always kept my nose clean. Like, I don't stay out late. I mean, there's nothing good that happens in Washington late at night, you know, in the political atmosphere. So I never did that stuff. I always... Um, not that I didn't like go have dinners and stuff that I, you know, with clients or whoever, but I don't, 
I always was the one that went home. I always made sure that I did things that was, um, you know, respectable. So I never had that issue. I didn't put myself in situations that, you know, could have been harmful. But um, so I always felt like it helped us, it helped stand, me stand out a little bit. I mean, even now, especially after the Me Too movement, I would say like people were gravitating towards women-owned companies and things like that because that whole movement was happening. But, and some of my best mentors, um, I haven't had many, I've had lots of people that have been my, um, that I've worked for that I really admire, but I've only probably had one or two true mentors, but they were always men. And so, you know, I just work very hard to set myself apart. And that was also by making sure that I'm overprepared for every meeting. You mentioned earlier how the firm is bipartisan. Mm -hmm. Do you work exclusively with one party, party while someone else on your firm works on the other side of the aisle, or you do both? So how we're set up now is, I, I mean, I'm, as I've said, a, I'm a Republican. I worked in the Bush world. I um, support Republican candidates, but um, it's not like over the years, I've definitely had to lobby Democrats as well, and it's fine. I mean, I am not a believer that um, if you request a meeting for a client and say for a Democrat office that they wouldn't have me come because I'm a Republican, that is just not true. I mean, there may be one or two offices. I've never experienced it. I think, I mean, how we're divided up, yes, I would say that the Democrat concentrates more on Democrat, Democrat offices and the Republican concentrates more on Republican offices. However, Again, <clears throat> with being a smaller firm, we all pitch in. So if there's someone that needs to cover meetings for somebody else, for a client, we do it. And so it's not like we would never do the opposite side. It's just when you're kind of aligned with the beliefs of that party, you kind of gravitate towards lobbying them. But for example, just to clarify, my one of my Democrats that work here now, he was hired out of the hotel association where he they divided it up on issues. So he lobbied, he's a Democrat that worked for Senator Klobuchar, but he lobbied both House and Senate Republicans and Democrats. So it it works both ways. Um, firms, though, are probably more divided into um, political backgrounds than corporations. More us versus them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we don't fight at our firm either over politics. We just kind of doesn't matter. We're just Put here behind. Them, Focus but... on the client. Exactly. Have you ever had someone who you just expect you get along with, and now you can't imagine ever not being close to? It was funny when I first left the White. Well, a couple years after I left the White House, and I was at the law firm, Heather Podesta, who was married to. Tony Podesta, who was a big Democrat consultant, very close with the Clintons. And I'm like, how do we ever? And then Barbara Comstock was also joining the firm at the same time. And she's a Republican congresswoman. So I'm like, oh, of course I'm going to like, I didn't know Barbara that well then. I'm like, of course I'm going to gravitate towards Barbara. But I actually ended up really, um, really getting along with Heather, learned a lot of her um, in regards to, because she was in the private sector before and, um, just learning a lot of, off her about, she's a very good political fundraiser. She's obviously very smart, um, but client servicer and probably one of the best, I would say. And so I, it was interesting just how much we connected, which I never thought we would have. And we were still friends on this day. Many times there's a lot at stake when Congress takes a vote or someone in the executive branch makes a decision. There certainly must be times when someone you count on to support a piece of legislation or oppose it votes against you. How do you handle differences and disappointments so they don't sour that working relationship? Well, it's one how you present yourself. I mean, one of my favorite stories I tell one of my current clients, I met the person that hired me for this client probably 10 years ago when I was lobbying him on an issue for his boss, who was a member of Congress. And he told me, no, that his boss, she couldn't support the issue. And I lobbied him for like 18 months about this. It was back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But we ended up becoming friends, even though he kept telling me no. <laughs> and so he said that the reason he hired me after he left and went to the private sector 
was because I didn't act like a big baby, right? I mean, it's not personal. And one thing that we have to remember is we represent clients, but the members of Congress that you're lobbying represent their constituents who live in their state, live in their district, and also elect them. And so your business proposition that you're trying to lobby on may not align with what is best for their constituents or what they perceive is best for their constituents. So you have to take the emotion out of it. I'm very good at that. Um, I always say, you'll appreciate this, the boys in my firm are much more emotional than the girls in my firm. Um, but you just can't take it personally. It is what it is. And you win some, you lose some, but you don't, you don't act like a big baby. You don't trash them. You don't, you know. It's just business. It's just business. So all of these different votes, obviously there's a lot at stake in, from a policy perspective. Would you share a memorable experience where your advocacy efforts had a significant impact on public policy? So people will remember this example, good or bad. Um, so we represented the company that made the EpiPen. Still do. Um, and represented them for about 10 years, even before the EpiPen thing happened. And um, obviously, I remember this in August. This was right after Obamacare passed. It was going into effect um, in regards to deductibles of healthcare uh, policies. And it was when kids were going back to school. So all the parents were going, and we didn't anticipate this happening at all. So when the higher deductibles went into place with Obamacare, we did not anticipate kids going back to school, then buying the EpiPens and their deductibles weren't met yet. Or even, because before they may not have had the same deductible, right? Like everything was changing, everything was new. And obviously most people remember that this was a horrible, horrible situation. We, pro we still talk about it, but we, in some meetings, but we had probably a good two and a half years where we had to, um, well, take a lot of arrows because we were the face. The CEO of the company, who's a dear friend of mine, was Senator Manchin's daughter. She obviously was even more scrutiny just because of that, right? Nothing, they had nothing to do with another, but I mean, I'm just saying it was like, oh, it was better, juicier story. Um, but to her credit, and it's something I learned, she was like, listen, I'm gonna be taking the fall for this, but I'm gonna make sure that everyone's gonna understand how the supply chain of the drug industry is working now because of there's five sectors that are involved in kind of the birth of a drug to how it gets to the patient and kind of some of the policies that were developed that impact the prices of drugs all across the board. And so we spent years and hours and hours and hours um, kind of educating and as you can imagine, people weren't necessarily wanting to like talk with us about this issue. And because a lot of people were mad. And so um, I would say, even though it's kind of a touchy issue and it's not a fun issue, um, it was the best learning experience. Uh, I would say it was a learning experience, not just from how to educate Congress about some of these issues, but also how... Um, as a CEO was like, I'll take the fall for this, but I'm going to make sure that to try to fix the system. And and by the way, we're still talking about fixing the system right now. So it's still happening. There's still bills that are actually moving further along in Congress than they ever have that will potentially fix this supply chain issue that inflates the drug. So I think that it's just a long-term life lesson that I'll probably be involved with until I stop uh, lobbying, but it was, it was good. As someone who has two daughters with nut allergies, I remember that very clearly, <laughs> very clearly. Uh, so we'll, we'll move on to the next question. Yeah, sorry. No, no, no. It wasn't our fault. I know that, I know that. <laughs> when we look at Washington from the outside today, we see paralyzing dysfunction in large part because of broken relationships. It seems like the Democrats and Republicans hardly talk to each other and often, as we recently saw with the speaker debacle, I'll call it, they don't even work with members of their own parties. 
Has it been like that the whole time you've been working in Washington or was there a turning point? So I, when I moved here in two th- December 2001, no, September, December 2000, so right before 2000, right, right before we went into the new administration, um, it definitely was not like this. And even the entire time um, I was in the administration, I mean, remember when Bush came in, he worked with Senator Kennedy on No Child Left Behind, love or not that bill, it's not that, that they worked together on it. Um, we were this close in 2007 working on um, an immigration bill that actually would have been something that both parties, he again was working with Senator Kennedy, both parties, the path to, you know, all different. I'm not going to go through what the bill was, but it was actually something that both um, parties could agree on. And then the banks collapsed. And so everything kind of went out the window because they were trying to save the banks. But um I would say the biggest change, I think, is the 24-hour news cycle, 24-hour news commentators, and social media. We did not have any of that during my time in the White House. Um, and so, right, everyone's, you know, talking to that two-minute soundbite, that minute soundbite, or that, you know, 30 Twitter or X or whatever. I mean, like, that's what everyone's talking to now. And so, um, you know, and I do a lot of TV and so I can say this, but like when people like me are like talking about every issue under the sun, like, and that's how people are getting their news. Like, that's not really, that's not how it used to be. I mean, I don't remember when, but we didn't have any social media one, but I don't remember when like the 24 hour cable networks became like mainstream, but definitely it was like, the evening news was the thing you watched at seven o'clock or six o'clock, whatever time it was. Oh my God, I'm aging myself. I saw my grandmother. I'm right there with you. <laughs> a couple of years older. I, and to that point, I think maybe CNN may have been that first one to really yeah. create that news cycle. So thank you, Mr. Ted Turner. <laughs> so if you had a magic wand or pixie dust, how would you fix the dysfunction in Washington? Or is our government just broken beyond repair? I don't think it's broken. I think that the, the the next thing that kind of broke I didn't get to was um, there was such decisiveness over Trump, and I'm not talking politics, but just the decisiveness of the country was pretty bad. Um, and so I think that broke it. And then I think because the Republicans felt like they were treated horribly during Trump, then when Biden came in, like, I don't think it's as decisive at all in regards to people criticizing the president, um, President Biden. But you're exactly right. I mean, I still think that there's flamethrowing going on, like you said about the Republican speaker thing. I mean, it's like, if who's not conservative enough? And who's this? And who's that? So I don't think it's productive at all. And until we get a leader in there, I think on the Republican side, that that I'm saying this as a Republican, if we get a Republican leader in there that's not decisive, I think it would be really helpful to set the tone on both sides. No, absolutely agree. So some critics suggest that lobbyists have too much influence over public policy, and that leads to industries having too much influence over the agencies that regulate them. Would you agree or disagree with that? I see, I always say this, everyone thinks of my profession is that we carry um, bags of money around all the time and try to influence people. I do not think that we have as much influence as people think we do. (laughs) And it's definitely not because of money. Fair enough. We've been talking to Ashley Davis about the practice of government relations in our nation's capital. And we'll be right back after a short break. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Love from the ashes, out of the grave, sweet taste of freedom, no longer your slave. Picture the heart-wrenching anguish a family endures when a child is abducted. Human trafficking is a worldwide crisis that plagues our society. Voices Against Trafficking stands as a voice for those entrapped in the depths of despair. Broken Treasures, You Hold the Key is a musical collection that showcases the dedication of artists and celebrities who were determined to protect the world's children. 
There is a way for you to make a difference right now. Visit VoicesAgainstTrafficking.com. The proceeds will go towards helping child victims. The power to liberate them rests in your hands. Cause I'm still alive. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. And we are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward. My guest today is Ashley Davis. Ashley is a lead principal at West Front Strategies, a multi-million dollar lobbying firm she co-founded in 2015. In that role, she oversees advocacy efforts for the interests of her Fortune 500 clients before the federal government's legislative and executive branches. Her expertise also comes from years working in the executive branch. Ashley, we were talking for the break about the concerns some people have about lobbyists having too much power and influence. How do lobbyists contribute to the democratic process? So if you ask most members of Congress, if not all, they feel that it's a it's something that people don't realize that these members have very little staff. So in the House, if you're a normal congressman, you have maybe four or five staff. If you're in the Senate, you have more, but you're obviously representing an entire state. And so there's not enough manpower for staff to know every issue about every bill or potential bill that's coming their way. So going back to my earlier comment about why it's so important to have a clean reputation in regards to not to telling the truth, telling the whole truth in regards to your issue that you're lobbying on. If you're a trusted lobbyist, staff reach out or want you to reach out so they get educated on how X, Y, and Z policy is affecting the, you know, this either specific company or this specific industry. So going back to kind of the conversation we're having about drugs um, or pharmaceuticals, I should say, is that, um, you know, you have a brand versus generic conversation all all the time. And so you have some of the healthcare staffers or healthcare committees reach out to companies or their lobbyists to say like, hey, if we did this, you're the one living it every day in regards to a rebate question. So I, how would that impact if we change policy this way? So it is part of the Democrat process because there's just too much information out there. Um, but again, you have to be trusted and you have to be one that is not just peddling something that isn't true. No snake oil or anything like that? No. And no bags full of cash, which everyone <laughs> has stated earlier. Yellow, yellow envelope. <laughs> Every now and then, we hear stories in the news about the revolving door. And by that, I mean people from the lobbying profession going back into government or people leaving government becoming lobbyists. What are the pros and cons of the revolving door? And what restrictions, if any, do you believe should be in place to make the system less prone to undue influence? Well, I think the the number one, there's there are things in place um, already. So if you leave Congress, you can't depending on the position, you can't lobby either your personal office. So I hired someone, say, from Senate leadership that worked for Mitch McConnell. He, for a year, was not allowed to lobby any Republican senators. Same happens, um, Democrat side. I mean, it's a it's a lot. If, you, if you're just working for a normal member of Congress, you just can't lobby um, – their office for a year. So there are things in place. You you can't, there is a reason that people aren't going to serve in government forever if they're not allowed to leave and go with the private sector. Um, and then the other thing is, is it's not even private sector. It's also like you can't even, you go and work for think tanks or nonprofits they're banned as well. So it's not just people that work for for-profit companies. They're banned from lobbying their former offices. And then in the White House, um, or 
the administration, if you work at us, and Chris, you probably maybe had this experience, I don't know, well, you don't lobby. So you're not allowed to, if you're at a certain agency, some, depending on your position, you can't sometimes lobby the entire agency, or at least you can't lobby certain aspects if you're um, at a lower position. And so this is the thing that I always suggest when there's always like that bad actor that gets caught. And then, you know, years ago, it was that Abramhoff person that got in trouble. Um, But they broke the law. So it's not that there weren't laws in place. (laughs) And so we have to remember that because it's really good what we do. And especially, you know, knee jerk reactions of then trying to put new things in place, which it's more just catching the people that are doing bad things. So if someone works for a congresswoman who's on, I'll say, House Financial Services or Energy, they can't lobby the congresswoman's office, but can they lobby the firms in those industries that the congresswoman is on the committee of? So if you worked for Senator or House Member X, could you and could you represent a company that she could, so So Congresswoman X is on the House Financial Services Committee. Okay. Can that person who left the congresswoman's office go and lobby a Goldman Sachs or a Bank of America? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's why a lot of them would be hired because they would have the expertise on those issues. Sure. Sure. Um, so they wouldn't have a ban on that. Now, there would be, I would think there may be like extreme situations where if someone worked on something specifically that if impacted a specific company, they would maybe have a ban for a year. But that's so, that doesn't really happen anymore, especially with earmarks kind of for specific companies kind of gone. Sure. Well, that makes sense. So obviously, Ashley, you've worked with people at the highest levels of government. Who are your role models, either in or out of your profession? And what is it about them that inspires or motivates you? So I was all, I learned a lot from Condi Rice, her office was beside, around the corner from mine when I was in Homeland. Um, Just as uh, an African-American woman who uh, just was the most well-respected individual in um, that White House and around the country, you know, all Republicans are always like, why can't Condi run? Um, but I really, really admired her and her work ethic and just truly how smart she was. Um, I, it's different when you get, when like Tom Ridge is an American, amazing human being, but I work so closely with him. It's like you become like father and daughter or like, you know, more than anything. So it's a different type of relationship. Um, but my biggest mentor was definitely someone I had at the law firm. His name was Mike Dyer. He was chairman of our managing partner and chairman of our firm with the, through the years. And he just took me under his wing. I never worked in a law firm before. And so as a mentor, as I referenced earlier, he was probably my um, my big mentor for sure in regards to that part of my career, which has led to this career. He's was a huge supporter, gave me opportunities that I never would have had if he wouldn't have um, given them to me, and just a true gentleman. And so I I never left the law firm to start my own. I'm moving this down a little bit because of that glare. Um, do you want me to shut that or is that okay? It's, you're fine. Okay. I um, never would have left the firm until he retired. So I was kind of free to go make a entrepreneurial decision by starting the firm. But yeah, he was amazing. He, he's an amazing human being. And just going back to your comment on Condi Rice, you can't see, but behind me, I have her biography, No Greater Calling. And uh-huh. I highly recommend it to people who haven't seen it out, out there. Uh, she's just truly, to your point, one of the great minds of our time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so highly recommend that. I get I don't get any commission from that. Just It's a great book. <laughs> uh, holidays are coming, so it's a good stocking stuffer. You know, So sticking with, with mentorship here for a moment, how important is mentorship and especially for women in government and the government relations profession? So I always, I have a struggle with this. I don't think women need mentorship any more than men do, one. I think that um, there is a good and bad story to membership mentorship. I think that there can be definitely, there 
I'm a big believer there shouldn't be just one and there's going to be many in different aspects of your life. <clears throat> you know, you may have a, a spiritual mentor or you may have a athletic mentor, you may have a work mentor. Um, and I don't think like a woman needs to have a woman or a man needs to have a man. I actually think like, I actually, if I would think I was a mentor to some people would probably be more on the men's side than it is on the, on the woman's side, but I, I do both. But I also think that as an individual, like, you're kind of responsible for making, and I speak a lot about this, <clears throat> you're kind of responsible for making your own pathway and doing the hard work and doing the strategic work to get there. And so it's great to have those mentors that push you along the way or open the doors, but you can't depend on them to get you where you want to go either. So I struggle with this whole notion because I think that some people think, well, my mentor didn't get me X, Y, and Z job or X, Y, and Z board seat or this and that. I mean, you can't put all that on that person. You have to earn it. You have to earn it. It's hard work. And maybe as a follow-up to that, what advice would you give to someone looking to pursue a career in government, government relations, or public policy? So... I have a lot of, excuse me, I have a lot of college graduates that will come and want to talk to me and pick my brain, which is fine. And I love to do it, but it's, um, Hey, I want to be a lobbyist, you know, how do I do that? And so my, what I always say is I'm a huge believer to go in. If you, if that's really what you want to do at some point, I think it's really important, whether it's on a state level, local level, federal level to go in and serve in the government. So you understand the aspect of that before you go into the business side of things. I also think people that start at firms say right out of college can work here, but it's really hard to move up unless you go in and then come back out. So going back to your revolving door, it's, you know, it would take you a lot longer to climb kind of the ladder of a firm um, without having that experience. Now you, you just touched on, you know, having some sort of uh, public sector government experience. Other than that, are there any other specific skills that you believe are particularly valuable in your field? Um, communication obviously, um, being able to to talk about your issue and talk about it succinct um, or issues, uh, a work ethic. I mean, I, I think, Chris, you and I spoke about this. I mean, I look back, and I don't want this to sound like I'm, you know, walking to school barefoot all uphill, like, you know, our parents used to say, but, you know, I work after 9-11, I worked seven days a week, you know, I, every day for three years, I had to be at the office by 5, 5.05 a.m. And that 05 was a big difference, you know, that five, you know, was very important. Um, you know, I would not get home till 10, 11 o'clock at night. I mean, so people look at kind of me now and it's like, well, you're successful. Did it all come so easy? I'm like, no, I, like I was an empty, empty person when I left because I worked so long. And so I think it's really important um, to understand that things, you have to still work hard. So I, I had a really big disconnect sometimes with folks and I give this advice to people too, and I'm sure this may be controversial, is when people didn't want to go back to school or back to the office after COVID. And I'm kind of like, how, that's fine if you're not looking for the next step in your career, which I'm not judging one way or the other that, but if you want to make and continue to grow, showing your face at the office when everyone else is there or your bosses are there is going to be helpful. And so I think that that cycle is kind of going back to people being in person again, because I think, I just think it's really important to see people. Yeah, it is. And you know, in my listeners though, I'm in the financial services industry for 25 years and was hybrid before COVID, obviously remote for several years. And then you're seeing more and more banks go sort of three yeah. days, now four days. Yeah. Uh, and, they're, and they're talking maybe next year for, for five days, maybe one flex day. So I'm uh, also seeing that. that I managers are actually saying now, if you don't show up at work, like you, that's fine if you're working, but you may get passed up for the promotion. Like they're actually voicing that now which everyone was too afraid to say that before. Exactly. And Jamie Dimon from JP Morgan was the first one to come out and say, if you want to get paid Wall Street dollars, you got to be on Wall Street. Yep. 
Yeah. So I and I agree with that. that. I mean, the same thing with Congress. I mean, yeah, it, it was nice not having to go to the Hill all the time, but um, it's just so different when you can go up there and talk to people face to face and then bump into someone in the hall and it's just different. Absolutely agree. So Ashley, there was a news report a few days ago that some higher ranking Israeli Defense Forces officers ignored warnings about the impending Hamas attack because those warnings came from young women in the Israeli Surveillance Corps. Have you ever encountered stereotypes or challenges during your career, either early on because of your age or throughout your year because of your, gen uh, your gender? Yeah, I would say um, for sure. Definitely age. Uh, I remember like when I turned 40, I was so happy because I was like, finally, I'll be taken seriously. Um, but age and then definitely, I, I, I don't know if, again, and I think any woman in business would say this, you automatically know that you may not be taken seriously because you're a woman or or a younger woman. But I'm not that anymore, but when I was, and that you have to just make sure you show up and um, work harder to get there. I mean, I'm watching this right now. If you're watching it on the Republican side on the presidential, like um, just kind of, we, we finally have a woman presidential candidate, right? And she's working harder and differently than her male ca counterparts. And so Hillary worked differently than her male ca counterparts, right? So I think you get it all over the place, but yeah, I've had it, but I'm not gonna wallow in it. You know, you gotta, you just pivot and make the best out of it. Also then there's been times where I'm definitely remembered more than my male counterparts because I was the only woman in the room. I love that. Or members of Congress will be like, oh yeah, the girl with short blonde hair. Yeah, I remember her, but they wouldn't remember my call, you know, someone else's name because there were 10 other boys that looked the same. You talked previously about, you know, emptying the tank when you leave work every day. Your job demands long hours and often puts you in high pressure situations. How do you manage work-life balance and what self-care regimen do you follow? I'm very structured, as I said again, and I make sure I have a boy who's 14 and one, and he, there's a few things. I manage my guilt <laughs> by making him a part of my life as much as I could have. I mean, he doesn't like to do things as much with me as he used to in regards to like go on trips or, and he can't, he's got his own life too. But um, like if I do TV, for example, he'll come with me to the studio when he can and just kind of see. But he also like gives him, I think I'm teaching him about a strong professional woman that's his mother. And so I think that will make him a better human being. And, and you know, I, I'll just say this because I think it's so adorable. But he told me the other day, he's like, Mom, you know, when I get bored in class, I kind of Google you to see like what you're up to that you don't talk about at home. <laughs> and I'm like, I think that makes you proud of me or am I like saying something you don't believe in? But, um, but so, you know, I mean, I kind of think, but then he, um, I also think I'm very, I wake up every day at five and I do the four newspapers, I work out and then I read something that's not a novel, but something that's inspirational. And then I try to write, um, something every day and just kind of get my thoughts on paper about whatever's in my mind. And then I wake him up and then take him to school. And, I, and as long as I'm not traveling, I drive him 30 minutes in the opposite direction of my ha of my office so I can spend that time with him. So, you know, everything's not perfect. I mean, things drop through the cracks and my husband is a very equal partner for sure. So I'm very fortunate in regards to that. But um, I I could actually get up at four thirty, and if I wasn't wouldn't be exhausted because I still have more I want to do, you know. But I do for anyone who's listening to this, I do go to bed at like nine thirty, <laughs> so I'm not like crazy. Sleep is very important. You're very disciplined. Yes. And you and I shared some stories about sports with our kids. I've got an eleven year old son, and, and we're both sort of transitioning out of that little boy into a teenage boy and, and to yeah. your point moving on to their own lives, which is uh, the next chapter, I guess, for yeah. us. So Ashley, we have just a few minutes left and I always like to have our guests take us to the close with something that gives them hope or offer advice to our audience to help them become less stressed, more content and more empowered. We were talking earlier about the dysfunction in Washington. 
But what gives you hope or what can people in our audience do to become more empowered? Take it from here, please. I still, and I, even with what happened, not to debate last year, two years, three years ago, almost to January 6th, we live in the most amazing country in this world. And we are the most um, looked up to nation. Some people don't like us, obviously. But you can do anything you really want in this country that you can't do in other countries. I mean, even there's so many success stories of how people were born. I mean, you know, as I said, I grew up in such a small town, didn't have the opportunities like my son does now, for sure. And, you know, just was nothing is in your way if you want it to be. Obviously, there's different situations for different people. But the American, the backbone of America is what people in some of these other countries don't like because we do have such hope and we're not controlled by one religion or our government's not communist. And so I I think that we lose sight about that. And sometimes Americans can be really spoiled because we do have such freedoms. But I do believe at the end of the day that the hope is that our country is going to survive. I mean, look what happened um, in so many different instances, 9-11, um, obviously January 6th, things that you thought would rock the foundation of this country, and we bounce back, and we bounce back stronger than ever. So I'm I'm a huge, and I appreciate it more and more and more as I get older, I think. So that is my hope, but I also think that um, working really, really hard, can, can you can get anywhere you want to. I totally agree with you. We're still that bright, shining light on the hill. So I couldn't agree more with those words. I really appreciate it. Yes. And if our listeners want to learn more about Ashley Davis or the West Front Strategies Group, where can they find you? So West Front is www.westfront.org. Um, I'm sorry. I think I'm like, I don't use websites as much anymore. I am on Instagram, Ashley Davis underscore DC and I'm on LinkedIn, Ashley Davis, DC. So um, I kind of don't do much like my social media, which I'm just getting into and uh, over the last couple of years, but I kind of focus on kind of my passions, which is political, women issues, fashion. And so um, it's kind of different than like lobbying stuff. So it's more interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want you to go out with science. No offense. <laughs> Ashley Davis, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. And I'm sorry I have this big light. See, maybe it was... No, it's your halo effect. Yeah, exactly. And thank you to our audience for joining us for another episode of Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details and upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek Public Figure. And on X, follow me on his Twitter. And how long do we have to say that for? at chrismeek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with another leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.